Hi, Eric. Well, hello. <laughs> um, I thought a good way to approach your recording experiences and techniques would be to talk about how they've changed over time. Maybe if we start with the drums, if you think about um, kind of the first few albums you were doing, like maybe the first Smash Mouth albums compared to now, have your drum techniques uh, stayed the same? If they changed, maybe you could talk about that. Sure, yeah. I mean, I, I had um, uh, a very specific drum setup that I that I used consistently, you know, that I sort of uh, developed in my early early experiences recording. And, um, you know, it was, it was sort of, um, um, yeah, I mean, it, it was very similar to what, you know, the standard approach is. There was a couple of unique things that snuck in there, but, um, on, uh, like the first third eye blind record, that was a really good example of, of that drum recording approach. So, um, I, I would use a stereo pair of overheads. That's, you know, a very common approach. Um, my preference was C12s. And a lot of times I would rent C12s from uh, a little audio company in Northern California. So that first third eye blind record, it's a pair of C12s over the drums. Um, there were moments when there's a couple songs in the record where I wanted something that was just a little moodier and more sort of nostalgic sounding so i'd use cole's 4038s as overheads instead of the the c12s um and then the snare drum um i would always have a 57 on there and then i would put something else on there just to kind of blend with it um so i ended up doing uh uh a u67 was was on the snare drum and there was also um a bottom snare mic so there's like three mics on the snare um i really like c12as on toms and so i'd always try and use those for all the all the toms um and the floor toms i would mic the bottoms as well so i'd you know mic the top with a c12a and then try and put maybe a 47 fet or some you know some other sort of good low endy large diaphragm condenser mic on the bottom and the kick drum um, was, was at that time was always a combination of a 47 FET and this Audio Technica ATM25, a dynamic mic, and I would blend those two together um, to get the uh, the kick drum sound. There was always like a cool phasing thing that would happen that would help scoop out some of the those low mids that make the kick drum sound kind of puffy. Um, and then for room mics, I did a few different things. Um, there were times, uh, it depended on the room that I was in. Um, you know, sometimes if, if it was a smaller room, I would actually use a dynamic microphone um, that had a very tight cardioid pattern and have it pointed away from the drums. So I'm getting all diffused room sound and would help make the room sound a little bigger. Maybe even put them on the other side of a gobo pointed away from the drums just to <laughs> try and make it make the room sound as big as possible, you know. Do you have any problems with noise and the preamps doing that? Not usually. I mean, I, I, you know, all of this stuff, this was all loud rock band stuff. So it was always plenty loud. You know, some of the stuff that I've been recording more recently, it would be hard to get away with that. Um, people are just playing way, way softer. Um, but no, there was always plenty of volume to grab in the room. Um, with with that stuff 
and then there was, you know, the Third Eye Blind record. We recorded some of it in in my studio at the time, HOS recording, um, which was a much larger room. And in there, I had a pair of AKG 460s that I really liked for room mics. They were just super flat, really, really accurate. It just sounded exactly like what it sounded like when you were standing in the room. Those were great. Um, 87s were really great. Um, so a lot of times it was, you know one of those two as pairs in the room. Um, and uh, we recorded Skywalker Ranch for some of it, which has an enormous sound room, one of the biggest sound rooms I've ever been in. Um, it was really designed for scoring films. Um, and they had an amazing mic collection. So they had um, Neumann M50s, and I set up a, an M50 Decatree um, to capture the room sound for the drums when we were there. It was a really cool sound. Um, so you can hear that like on um, the song God of Wine. It's really featured on that song or Good For You. Um, you can really hear it on that. Um, and the sound of my room is more the um, uh, semi-charmed life. Um, there was another smaller studio that we recorded at, which was um, the this, this studio called Toast in San Francisco. And that was um, the song Graduate. That was the like smaller room with a dynamic mic they were actually sennheiser 441s on the room um and the the other thing that i would always do is um have a mono room mic that i use for the kick drum and so i would control the gating of it with one of the close mics that was on the kick drum so i could really have it only have the gate only open up when the kick drum hits and use that for this just like punchy real chesty room sound on the kick drum to just make the kick drum not sound like just a click with some low end attached to it but actually sound like a kick drum in the room you know and um so that was really kind of my thing you know for um for the first round of smash mouth recordings and and that third eye blind record and then there was a cool thing that i heard about um, while I was working on that record, I, I, I heard about it third hand. Um, so, uh, there's a really amazing engineer, this guy, Jakir King. Um, uh, he was actually, um, the assistant that came with the, the studio toast. <laughs> he was, you know, just, uh, terribly overqualified to be an assistant. Um, even back then. And, uh, and so he assisted me when uh, I was recording uh, the Third Eye Blind stuff at Toast. And, um, and he told me about a thing that he had heard about, which was putting a U87 on the batter side of the kick drum underneath the snare drum. And you put it in cardioid facing the, the, um, the drum head of the batter side of the kick drum. And it picks up the bottom of the snare and you get this really cool knocky attack of the kick drum. And I heard about it. I ended up not really trying it until later. I tried it um, when I got into actually recording the rest of the first Smash Mouth record in 97. And I totally fell in love with it and, and used it, you know, religiously from that point forward. He, he heard about it from a guy named David Bianco, another amazing engineer. Um, and so I just loved it. We just add this amazing detail to both the kick and the snare drum, very isolated way. Um, and it, and it was 
cool. It was almost had this kind of trashy quality to it that I really liked. It was just it was just great. Um, and so that's all over the first Smash Mouth record and pretty much everything I did for a few years after that. So, um, did you ever have any problems with cymbal bleed into that mic? Because I've tried a few kind of similar things with kind of mic trying to pick up the whole underside of the kit and the click of the drum, but the cymbal bleed was so kind of bad it just didn't work out. That's interesting. I, it, that was never an issue with that mic. So, I mean, where I'm putting it, it's it's you know how like um, uh, if you're a right-handed drummer. Um, you have the kick drum sitting there, and then you know you're using. You have your right foot on the kick drum. The snare drum is between your legs, and so the snare drum is sort of on the left side of the kick drum. And so the mic sits right under the snare drum, facing at the batter head, and the bottom. Oh, of I the, see. So, okay. Yeah, and so like it uses the snare drum as a baffle, and um, and so I never really had significant problems with um, with cymbal bleed in that position. You get a lot. And the mic is, you know, like two or three inches from the batter head of the kick drum. I mean, you just get a, an insane amount of kick drum and snare drum, you know. And so, um, so that hadn't been an issue for me in that position. Um, and that sort of evolved over the years. There was a, a time when I stopped putting it under the snare and I wanted to get more of just the attack of the kick drum. And I started using a little Sony lapel mic that I would actually tape to the top side of the uh, the rim of the kick drum and just let it dangle down and look down across the batter head of the kick drum, uh, maybe just like six inches above where the uh, the kick drum beater would hit the head, you know? And so I used that on, um, I was doing that probably on the first Good Charlotte record. I was definitely doing it on the Lost Profits record. Um, the Lost Profits record was one of the first ones where um, I used the underheads thing, where um, I got the drummer to put the cymbals up higher and had mics in figure eight that were getting the toms and the cymbals. And so the, the microphone would go in, you know, below the cymbal but above the toms. And, um, and so that was... That was a thing I was into for a few years. I did that on the Lost Profits record. I think I did it on a Taking Back Sunday record. Um, was that normally uh, like a U87 or something like that? Um, I did it with um, C12s or C12As or the um, the Coles 4038s. And uh, the 4038s are tricky. Like if you play too hard, it doesn't – you can't get them too close to the toms, you know. Um, but it was cool. You know, it, it, it gave just a very natural and, and very isolated, um, you know, stereo picture of the drum kit uh, because of the nature of the figure eight pattern. Like the mic that was on the left side of the kit that was getting the crash cymbal over there and the hi-hat and the rack tom, like you would get entirely just those elements because – the node of the pattern is looking across the drum kit and you get none of the floor tom and none of the ride symbol or the crash symbol that's on the other side of the kit. Um, so it was pretty good for getting a very wide, very isolated stereo image. Um, so that was cool for a while. And then after that, I started getting into a more minimalistic thing. You know, I was, I was having these sessions where I had like fucking 15 
16 tracks of drum lines, you know, and um, and it just got ridiculous. I, I was just I, I don't want to spend my time <laughs> having to mix all of these tracks and having to set all these goddamn mics up. This is just too much, you know. And so um, I started stripping things back more and more and more until, you know, uh, more recently I've been doing a lot of stuff with just one microphone for the drums. And um, I'm a lot happier uh, <laughs> with that approach. Um, you know, it takes a, a little bit of trickery with, uh, with the mixing to make sure that you can really get the low end impact and stuff. But the, the, the mixing tricks that I need to do in order to make one mic work is way less time and way less complicated than the, just the pain in the ass of having to deal with the phasing of having 16 different microphones on one sound source, you know, it's just, it's a mess. It's just a mess. So, yeah. Were you doing a lot of, uh, kind of Glenn Johns as well with the minimal techniques? I did. Yeah. The, um, I, I did some of the over under stuff, um, on, um, Let's see. On the Slash record, the first Slash record that I that I recorded is is like the over under thing, and you know, I had a slight variation of it. The, his original thing, where the um, you know the under mic is looking across the floor tom at the snare drum, um, I found that the way the phasing lines up with that was a little too disconnected for me. Um, and so I ended up taking that mic and pulling it up a little higher and facing it down more and being careful to have it be equidistant to the snare drum. And so I kind of, you know, just cheated that spot up and angled a little bit just, just to make the phasing add up in a more, focused way so it's not too totally isolated sounds and um and it, it worked well on on the slash record there's um yeah you know uh how are you normally panning the overheads in glenn john's or over under um with that i wouldn't do it quite as much um you know just hard panning left and right because you know the snare drum is not in the center of those two mics um it's uh uh you know the the over mic is way more snare heavy and so um a lot of times i'd have actually have to take the closest mic on the snare and lean that a little bit to the right just to try and get the snare drum to sort of arrive more in a you know balanced middle way you know um and sometimes I would just bring in the left and the right a little bit if it got too wide sounding because it, it can just you can lose a little bit of the punch and the focus if it's if it's splayed out too wide. With the uh, more minimal techniques, is it normally like FET forty seven on the kick and fifty seven on the snare, or there's there's actually no close mics on the drums at all. Um, yeah, none. Um, you know, so this whole last record that I was working on. Um, uh, it's just one microphone and, and my favorite spot is, uh, it's a little bit out in front of the kit. And if it's a four piece drum set, you know, so you just have one rack tom, one floor tom, 
and there's like a hi-hat and a cymbal on the left side and a crash cymbal and a ride cymbal on the right side. Um, I try and put the mic sort of equidistant um, between the rack tom and the floor tom looking in towards the snare drum. And that has gotten me the most balanced um, picture of the kit with one mic. You, you, can't, you can't get away with putting the ride cymbal right in that traditional spot where it's sitting over the, the floor tom. I have to move that off to the right so it's to the right of the floor tom um, or you just get all ride cymbal. Um, but, man, I love it. It just, it sounds like drums. It just sounds like real, real drums, you know, like putting, nobody listens to a drum set with their ear one inch from the fucking snare drum. And so, you know, nobody really knows what that, <laughs> what that actually sounds like until you hear it come out of the speakers. And it doesn't sound like a drum set in a room at all. It's, it's a real problem. And so, um, so I just love having this mic and, you know, and you just, you can make it a little closer, a little farther if you want more or less room, you know, how intimate you want it to sound. And then um, when I'm mixing, I make a duplicate of that one track and I gate it so the duplicate only opens when the kick drum hits. And then I'll filter it very, very extremely. So a low pass filter way down at like 50 hertz and use that as the low end for the kick drum. And so you get plenty of punchy attack and detail out of the one mic, you know, that's the full bandwidth. And then you just blend in this, this filtered subby low end to have it, have a more modern low end to it. Is that with a, um, Bay M160? I think that's what I've seen you do it with before. Yes. Yeah. The 160 is amazing for that. Um, I've done it with, um, a, uh, an RCA 77 is great. Um, it works with more hi-fi stuff. I did it with a uh, with a 251 one time, um, but yeah, mostly ribbon mics. Um, I did one where it was in that position. I, I I had a I had two Coles microphones. So one where it's facing the drums, and then the other one, you know, so it's like an an MS pair. The other one that is is turned, you know, exactly 90 degrees from the one that's facing the drums. And then you can do, you know, an MS recording of the drums, which is kind of cool because you can just blend in however much of a stereo image you want. You can have it just be mono or you can widen it out a little bit. Um, and so that that's worked really well. Also. What kind of compression do you normally find yourself doing when, if it's just one mic? Um, you know, um, my my favorites are still uh, an eleven seventy six. I have a blackface eleven seventy six. That's amazing. Just great aggressive, you know, very thick sounding compression. Um, the unfair child is incredible. That that ends up um, doing it a lot of times. Um, this this last record, I'm I'm using a lot less compression. So there's I'm not compressing the drums at all. And um, there's just a little bit of compression on the overall mix, either with uh, an unfair child or um, this old Altec tube limiter. Um, and uh, I, I was—I've actually really been enjoying that. I, you know, I am by nature sort of a contrarian, and, and as modern records are getting more and more compressed, um, I'm going—I want to go in the opposite direction. <laughs> And have these records that are just really just open and and huge sounding, you know. Uh, 
it's it's pretty wonderful when you you know get it in your car and turn it up and there's just all this space and dynamics it's it's it feels incredible with those minimal mic techniques do you find uh the room plays a really big kind of part in how they end up sounding it does yeah uh you, i mean you have a lot less control over how you can ma- manipulate things and you know i had an interesting thing where um uh i, I recently moved um to a new area of Southern California. I'm in this, this area called Topanga, Topanga Canyon. And I built a small home studio here that I was really intending for it to be a mix room. And, um, you know, I did a bunch of acoustic treatment to the room and all that. And then I was doing, starting to work on demos for the, the album. I just, I, I literally just finished minutes ago. <laughs> Finally just finished the mastering of it. Um, and, um, started recording some drums in this room and it was insane. Like this room is so musical sounding. I can put a microphone anywhere in this room and it sounds incredible. And, um, other rooms are definitely not like that. And I took the same drum set, the same microphones, the same preamps in a different room when we were re-recording this stuff and didn't have anywhere near the same like punch and focus and just, like this warm, like the sound is focused in the fundamental punch of the drum kit instead of being this kind of thin, splashy, you know, brittle sounding thing. So the the room is a big part of it for sure. So maybe going back to um, comparing how you used to do things now, maybe we can move on to electric guitar. Was there kind of a go-to back then and compared to now? Sure, yeah. Um, you know, back in the Third Eye Blind era, um, I had I had three microphones that were my go-tos for guitar. Um, there was a 57. There was a Bayer M201. Another. It was basically their version of a 57. Um, the Sennheiser 441. Uh, and occasionally, I'd use a um, a condenser mic, like a U87 or something like that. And, uh, and I would usually just put all four, you know, like if it was a 412 cabinet, put a mic on every speaker and then just see which ones sound the best, try combinations and just sort of play with combinations or, you know, blending them or whatever until I got something that, that felt right. And, um, and so that was like all of that, um, you know, third eye blind and smash mouth stuff early on, um, and, you know, again, it was just sort of a complicated, slow way to do it. And, um, and in some ways, you know, I was missing the opportunity to really capture how an amp sounds in the space that it's in. And so now I'm very rarely putting microphones right in front of the speaker. Yeah, the microphones are usually three, four, five, six feet away from the amp. Um, and it's amazing, like, you know, it still is a very focused sound, but I find that it just has so much more personality to it. It's a very identifiable sound, you know, um, that has its own character and its own its own life to it instead of just being this sort of very microscopic, you know, surgical sounding thing. 
what kind of mics are you normally using um, that far back? Um, all kinds of stuff. Uh, um, I like both ribbons and condensers in this context. So it could be, you know, a Coles or a 77 or an RCA 44 if I'm going for something darker and deeper sounding. Um, the, uh, the Sony C37 can be really incredible when it's off the, the amp a little bit. That was a mic that uh, Jimi Hendrix used a lot for his guitar. Um, I love U87, um, uh, 67, the um, 251, like, you know, all of those sound amazing just in the room capturing, capturing the whole sound of the amp, you know. And it's really fun. You can just take the mic and, like, you know, I, I don't put a whole lot of thought into it now. I, I just grab the mic and just sort of plop it someplace in the room, see what it sounds like, you know. And if it's cool, great. I got my sound. I'm moving on. If it's lacking lows or highs or doesn't seem to be coming across right or it's got a weird phasey, you know, notch in it or something, I just grab it and throw it somewhere else in the room and um, and don't overthink it and just use my ears. Um, and when something cool pops out of the speakers, great, here we go, <laughs> you know, and, and I find that I'm, I'm capturing more unique sounds um, with that approach instead of trying to, you know, figure it out on a calculator first. Um, I, th I think you can waste a lot of time doing that. Do you ever kind of miss low end just doing things that far back? Um, you know, yeah, sometimes it can get a little thin, but th there's an easy remedy. Just don't put it right in front of the amp, you know? You, it, when you get it off access, you, you can literally EQ the sound with the position of the mic. You know, if you want it brighter, put it more in front of the speaker. If you want it boomier and bassier, then just pull it off away from the direct line of the speaker, and it warms right up, you know? So maybe moving on to, like, electric bass uh, back then compared to now? Yeah, so back then, um, you know, all of these have sort of followed the same trend. You know, I was I was in the habit of using multiple amps and a DI and all of this stuff. Um, so typically there was at least, you know, a DI signal, uh, an SVT. Um, and I always liked miking the SVT a little further back. Even, even back then I was already, you know, having that experience with, with that particular speaker cabinet. I never liked the way that thing sounded with a mic, you know, one inch away from one of the eight speakers. Um, and so I used to put the mic um, about 30 inches back and right in the center, the focal point between four of the either the four upper or four lower speakers. The four lower were a little subbier, the four upper were a little punchier and more detailed sounding. And um, you get a much clearer, more aggressive mid-range when you do that rather than put the mic, you know, one inch from one of the eight speakers. Um, so I do that and then um, usually some little like guitar combo amp um, that'll get like a more distorted grindy mid-range go um, and blend that in for a really cool pick attack or just, you know, some sort of character uh in the in the mid-range that i can turn up so the the svt doesn't have to be so blown out and i have another amp that's a little more distorted that um that gives me that grittiness that i can blend in 
and then the the di typically i would use um for the sub part you know and i always used to have to play with you know back then i was re recording on tape machines with consoles and all that and um and i used to use a tc electronics 2290 digital delay it was sort of like the most high resolution digital delay on the market um for lining up the timing of the di signal with the bass amp because you know um, I had the microphone a couple feet away from the speaker cabinet. Um, that's a couple milliseconds of delay. And so I would take the DI signal and delay it with the 22 night. You could also get tenths of a second, um, um, or I'm sorry, tenths of a millisecond um, with that device. And, uh, and line up, you know, the, um, the DI with the, the amp signals. And, um, and so now, um, you know, I, I've done a few different things. I've, you know, there was a period where I got really into just, just using the bass DI and, you know, um, it's, it's sort of like the old Motown approach where it was a DI, but, you know, they ran it through an Ampex preamp with a bunch of gain. So it would, you know, break up a little there and then go to a tape machine and you get a little more, you know, um, coloration from the tape machine and give you this really fat, warm sound, you know, um, uh, yeah, with, um, with just a DI, you know, that was, um, have you tried the new, um, Motown DI, the Acme audio one? Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and so, you know, I got into doing that, um, for a bunch of stuff. Um, and then, uh, you know, on this last project, we had kind of a unique thing. We wanted a, a very distinct bass sound for the record, and so we ended up using a Fender Bass Six. And um, I would use just one amp um, in a in kind of a small room. It's it was like a large booth, but I used I stereo mic'd the amp, and so it was just a more ambient bass sound that just kind of wraps around, you know, the listener more than this like really mono focused thing. And, um, and I'd even take one of the mics and delay it maybe, you know, 13, 14 milliseconds just to have the, even widen it out more. Um, and so, um, so yeah, I mean, I think it's more, more recently it's been more about like capturing an instrument that has a specific personality, a memorable quality to it. Um, that jumps out rather than just getting the technical job done of getting a very nice clear low end and all that, you know. Okay, so maybe moving on to acoustic guitar. I know you've been a fan of mid-side and certain stereo techniques. Maybe you could talk about that. Um, sure, yeah. There's There's been uh, a couple of things over the years. So, yeah, early on I was really into the mid-side thing. I had this... Um, uh, this Bronner um, stereo tube microphone um, that was pretty amazing for acoustic guitar. And so I would set that thing up in a mid-side configuration. I used that on, yeah, all of the early Smash Mouth stuff. Um, probably, I would, I would guess, um, uh, on the Third Eye Blind stuff as well. Um, and then there was a point where... 
when I was working on the Nickel Creek record, um, which obviously really features acoustic guitars and acoustic instruments in general, I, I wanted to get just um, a bigger, wider um, acoustic guitar sound on the songs where the acoustic guitar was sort of the centerpiece and then there was like a mandolin and a violin sort of hovering around on each side. And so I started doing this thing where I'd take two condenser mics and, and uh, it was um, these Sheps 221s. They're just amazing on acoustic guitar. Um, and just take one and angle it 45 degrees down towards the lowest E string and then have one below the guitar, below the sound hole, angling up 45 degrees at the high E string. And so you, you almost get like this grand piano effect where the low and high strings sort of pan across speakers and it's just an amazingly huge um really focused sound and in some ways I, th I think was more natural it just it caught a more natural picture than than the ms version that i was doing before um ms stuff there's always this risk of having one side be deficient in low end and um and this was much more balanced with the low end and um, so I, I, I was doing that for a long time, you know, whenever it was like an individual featured acoustic guitar that was sort of centerpiece of the recording. Um, the, uh, that 221, there was, um, and I think it was both mics, there was a song on the, um, uh, the All-American Rejects record uh, that I recorded um, where those mics worked so well on the guitar that he had that from recording to all the way through mastering, um, they were never EQ'd. So there was a little bit of compression, you know, on them at one point, but I didn't EQ them when I tracked them. I didn't EQ them when I mixed them and there was no EQing done in the mastering of the song. And so it was sort of like the, uh, the, the perfect, the perfect guitar recording, <laughs> at least for that song. Do you have any tips for recording acoustic guitar at the same time as a singer? Obviously, a singer playing the acoustic. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah, that is tricky. Um, I, uh, you know, for that, um, I put the, the microphone that is being sung into um, in in figure eight. Um, and so, you know, you can angle it. So the node of the pattern is pointed right at the sound hole of the guitar and it cancels out all of that low end, um, from the acoustic guitar. And you really get a much more focused, you know, recording of the vocals. You'll, you'll get ambience of the guitar and the vocal mic as it sort of, you know, pours out into the recording space and gets into the backside of the pattern. But, you know, that's actually, I think, is a good thing. It, it adds a little space, you know, an air to the guitar sound. Um, and then on the guitar itself, I, I always like putting the microphone not directly in front of the sound hole. I, I find that's a really boomy, unbalanced place to put the microphone. Um, so I put it a little further um, down the neck, usually around the 15th fret, um, you know, maybe just uh, a foot. 12, maybe 18 inches away, right around there. And um, 
you know, you can do a similar trick with, um, with that mic. If you use fig eight and angle it the right way, you'll, it'll cancel out, um, the singer's voice. Just, you know, aim the noise, the, the node of the pattern, you know, which would be like the top of a 251. You just aim that right at the singer's mouth and you get very, very little vocal in that mic. Um, so those patterns work really, really well for that. Uh, I, I did quite a bit of that with Nickel Creek where I would put them in a semicircle where, you know, a mic placed directly in front of the mandolin player put the node of that microphone pointing directly at the acoustic guitar player who was sitting next to him. And then the same thing with the violin player. And, uh, you know, you use the pattern to, to naturally cancel out the adjacent player. Maybe moving on to piano, kind of grand or upright, um, any techniques over the years? Sure. Yeah. For, for grand piano, I, I tend to, um, I don't like sticking the mics way up inside just over the harp. Um, I, I find that the sound is really phasey and weird and I get lots of mid-range anomalies um, inside, uh, you know, underneath the lid of the piano. Um, I've seen some people really put them like right over where the hammers hit the strings and stuff and, and that, that always just sounds really weird to me, too claustrophobic. And so... Um, I like to pull them out more of the piano and um, have the mics a little closer to each other and create a little XY thing. So one is kind of angled off looking at the low strings and the other one is angled off looking more at the high strings, um, both in cardioid. And um, uh, that's always just sounded more natural. It just sounds like the piano in the room. Um, I do like getting, uh, um, e even those mics end up can end up sounding pretty phasey, and so um, I find that room mics help sort of smooth that out. Um, so I'll put put mics in the room just totally faced away from the piano, and um, and use that to just create a sort of glue and air to sort of glue the whole sound of the piano together. Uh, I did uh, a recording on this last record where I had a piano player and a singer in the room at the same time. I wanted to just capture the sound of the whole thing just happening in the room together all at once. And so there was a pair of mics on the piano and, you know, a pair of mics in the room and then uh, a mic that the singer was singing into and just positioned the singer. So I'd get the right amount of vocal in the room mics and the piano and everything and just be able to try and balance it all out. And it's really cool. Just, it, it feels like you're just in the room with them, you know, Maybe with upright, are you generally micing from the front, kind of front of the hammers, or from behind? Or, um, yeah, it's sort of. I mean, for obvious reasons, it kind of depends what you're going for. Um, the piano that I have sounds really, really cool. Both um, when you put the mics on the front, just right over the harp, you know, where the hammers hit the strings, but it's a really aggressive, very attacky sound. This particular upright is really old. It's probably about a hundred years old, and um, it uh, all the felts have hardened to the point where it almost sounds like a tack piano. And um, uh, and so, if you really want that super, you know, um, aggressive attack, it's really great for that. And then the backside of it is really cool. There's no opening there at all, but just the sound somehow 
finding its way out through the back of the enclosure is a very cool, diffused, kind of warmer, um, deeper sound um, off of this particular piano. And I've, I've used that quite a bit as well. Do you have any kind of go-to mics for those situations? Um, yeah, I love Cole's 4038s on a piano. Um, I love those. Uh, that's probably what I use the most. Um, you know, on, on this particular piano, um, condenser mics get way too bright on the front side. It's just, it's just too, too clanky, too clacky. Um, and I'm trying to think if I've used anything else on the back side. So it, really the 438s have, have been the thing for that. So maybe moving on to vocals now, obviously it varies a lot with the singer, but, um, do you have any sort of techniques or particular mics that you've gone to over the years? Um, yeah, I mean, probably the, the, the mainstays have been, um, an Elam 251. So that was the mic for the vocals on the first third eye blind record. Um, and the SM seven, um, you know, the SM seven has a thing like it just sounds so in your face. It's really, really cool. Um, I've used that mic so much on so many records. Um, and, and it takes EQ really well for some reason. Like you can just really wrench on it with EQ and kind of push it wherever you need it to go. And it seems to take the EQ better than, than other mics. Um, so those have always been, you know, uh, a couple of my favorites. Uh, they've probably gotten the most use over the years. Um, uh, I do like ribbon mics for, uh, for vocals as well. Um, I know on the first Smash Mouth record, I wanted to get a more vintage vocal sound for Walking on the Sun. And so we, we used a Coles 4038, 4038, the, uh, vocals on that particular song. The rest of the album was definitely SM7. Um, more recently, uh, I have a, um, an RCA 77 that I love, um, you know, you got to EQ the crap out of it because it's just, it's so dark sounding, but the high end that you get when you turn it up is just beautiful sounding. It's really incredible. Um, and so I've, I've used that on a quite, quite a bit of stuff. Um, uh, 44 is amazing for vocals. Um, again, it needs tons of EQ. Um, I'll either use like an undertone audio EQ, um, when I'm tracking or, um, I have these old uh, Siemens, um, you know, W two nine five equalizers, um, and those are pretty incredible. Like the the high frequency knob on there on an RCA seventy seven, you can just turn it all the way up, and it just sounds beautiful. <laughs> With the SM seven, um, what's your go to preamp? Because I found it makes a huge difference, especially with that mic. Um, yeah, I mean, for a long time, I was always using Neves. Um, I had um, a rack of 1064s. Um, uh, you know, that was just the preamp that I had used early on in my career. And, you know, I just knew it. And uh, so I, I stuck with it for a long time. And then, um, you know, when we switched to uh, the, you know, when we developed the undertone audio circuitry and made a mic preamp ourselves, um, that was one of the things that I checked. I made sure that it would sound good with an SM7. Um, and, uh, and so that's now, that's the, the preamp that I use for pretty much everything at this point. Um, 
but yeah, early on it was, uh, it was just a Neve, you know, um, 1073 style Mike preamp. So maybe moving on to talk about, uh, compression and processing in general, how do you decide whether to compress kind of on the individual tracks or on like the drum bus or any other bus and the two bus at the end? Yeah, I mean, it's it's very um, genre specific, you know, I, I, I think, you know, I went through my big sort of compression, um, you know, fetish um, earlier in my career, um, where I, it was just an experiment to see how much I could compress things, you know. <laughs> and, um, and so, you know, some of those early records um, have unbelievable amounts of compression on them. Um, and, and there is sort of a game that you play, you know, um, where I think for me, you know, um, I would compress, you know, the individual kick and snare mics of the drum kit. Um, and then, uh, not really compress the overheads individually and those would get caught in a drum submix, you know, that has compression. And I mean, it was just an insane amount, you know, the, I was using just distressors on everything. And so the kick and the snare would have, you know, 10, 12, 14 dB of compression. And then the whole drum mix would also have, you know, be metering 10, 12, 14 dB of compression. You know. And, um, uh, and then the mix would have compression, probably less than that, more like, you know, three or four dB of compression on it. Um, and so, you know, it was just a, it was just a different kind of thing. And, um, and now, uh, this last record that I'm just finishing, there's no compression on any, you know, individual drum, anything. And so it just gets compressed in the overall mix bus. And, and I'm actually paralleling the mix bus compression. So, certain instruments that need to sort of stand out in the mix um, go to an uncompressed bus that's in parallel. And so that overall bus compression um, is mostly to just, you know, anchor the drums and the bass, and they'll catch a little bit of the guitars and keyboards and other stuff. Um, do you have a kind of standard two bus? I mean, I'm sure the unfair child, but um, anything else that's normally in it? Yeah, you know, I, I love um, love the unfair child. That's probably on there the most. Um, I have these uh, these modified Altec 436Cs um, that I really like as well. They're very similar to the to the fair childs, uh, the unfair childs. Um, I have an API 2500 and sometimes I'll use that in combination with one of the tube compressors in series and so I'll set each of them a little lighter and you know the the tube compressor adds more sort of girth and um, color to the sound and does a little bit of compression and then the 2500 has more of this like brick wall where it just holds things in place better um, and so the combination of the two can be really really great um, and so um, I, you know the, the trend is definitely to 
has been to simplify things. And it, and it's interesting when I, you know, I listen to these final mixes, um, they don't, it's, they don't sound like they're not compressed. Um, but I, I think there's a point when there's layers and layers and layers of compression that you, you really stop getting, you stop getting the benefit of each of those layers of compression. And, um, and I think you really can just kind of do one round of it <laughs> when it's set carefully and it's a good sounding compressor. You can just kind of catch it all in one shot at the end, you know. Are you typically doing any EQ on the two bus? I am, yeah. I, you know, um, I used to not do that. I used to feel like it was cheating or I'd somehow failed at mixing if I was EQing the two bus and, and, um, I've gotten over that. And, um, and so now like the, you know, the mastering of records has such a tremendous impact on the dynamics and the sound of the record that I have to incorporate a mastering chain, um, into my mixing process. Um, just to make sure that everything is going to work together. Like if I get, the mix sounding perfect the way I want it um, before all that limiting goes on there, there's no way it's going to sound the same. Like it, it absolutely has to change um, once all of that dynamic processing happens in the mastering. And so I just add it while I'm mixing and mix to accommodate it. And so, and it's actually an interesting, you know, conundrum right now because um, things are changing. I was just sort of digging around on the internet trying to figure out what the state of the loudness war is at right now. And it's, and it's, it's starting to back away because, you know, the, the source that everybody's using for listening now is mostly streaming and all the streaming services are using level normalizing algorithms. And so even if you deliver to them the loudest fucking master you've ever heard in your life, their algorithm analyzes the file and just turns it down. <laughs> and so uh, I'm actually right now trying to figure out what I'm going to do about that. Um, because, you know, I still want to have a healthy volume for the CD version that's released. Um, that's at least in the same ballpark as our other stuff out there. And then um, I think I'm going to do a totally different master that's delivered to the streaming services. So, um, so they don't just level my mixes down, you know? I think there's a website where you can upload a track and it tells you how much each streaming service will turn down your mix. Yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> I actually did that this morning. Right. It's the, the uh, loudness penalty analyzer. Yeah, that was one, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so I'm actually going to take that to heart. It's, this is going to be an experiment because I, you know, uh, this is all new since the last time that I've mastered the record. And so, um, so I'm very curious to see how this is going to play out. So there's probably going to be, you know, a version of these masters that has a good five or six dB less limiting on them. Um, which is also kind of interesting because I was monitoring with all that limiting while I was mixing. And so, <laughs> you know, the mixes may actually not sound quite right without it. And so I'm, I'm trying to figure out um, what the hell to do about it. So we'll, we'll, we'll see how that plays out. But, um, one of the things that I've been doing is, um, I've been using, um, 
the excuse me uh, universal audio version of the uh, uh, EQP1A, the Poltec EQ, um, using that on the mix bus to shape the low end. And uh, man, it is pretty magical when you set it way low, like at 20 or 30 hertz, and you do a boost and a cut at the same time, it does this unbelievable thing where it just moves all of the low end energy to this, you know, more sub region and it just adds incredible depth to the mix. It, I've been really enjoying that a lot. So, um, yeah, I'll definitely try that. Um, yeah, I highly recommend it, you know, just set the boost and, and the attenuate, you know, right around four or five and you'll hear this un amazing, you know, deep low end, just, um, emerge on your mix it's really cool um and uh, and so i have it on there while i'm mixing um and uh the other thing i've been doing lately is um using multi-band um compression for just the low frequencies so kind of where i'm ending up with things now is i i I still enjoy compression more for the low frequencies than the high frequencies. You know, things just tend to start sounding kind of harsh and uh, messy and, you know, small and um, too crowded and you lose a lot of detail and definition when you get too much compression going in the, in the mid range and high frequencies. And so, um, you know, so I, I do more compression in the low end and leave the high end just kind of uncompressed and leave all the dynamics up there. And it, um, you know, you have this, this really solid foundation that holds up the mix and then this wonderfully sort of open and natural dynamic sound in the, uh, in the mids and high frequencies. What's your standard, um, multiband compressor? I've been using Wave C4, um, you know, uh, as part of my mastering chain. Um, and, uh, you know, again, I have that active while I'm mixing because it, it, it has a pretty significant um, effect to the, yeah, to the low end of the mix. So I have to be listening to it while I'm mixing it. So you're mastering this album yourself completely? I, I am, yeah. Um, I think... Uh, um, uh, I've, d I've been doing that more and more recently just because like, like I mentioned, the, the mastering has such a huge effect on the sound of the mixes that, you know, depending on what the mastering chain is doing, it would cause me to do things differently while I'm mixing. And so, um, so I'm just trying to like get it all to work together and, um, and I'm, I'm really happy with it on, on this, this round of stuff, um. It just it just sounds really big and and just very comfortable to listen to. Um, I'm kind of kind of tired of listening to stuff that feels like it's just being strangled. Um, it's very very fatiguing to listen to, and so um, uh, I just I, I want to have stuff come on and just have it just feel feel comfortable, just feel natural, and you know, not you know a strain on my ears and. Uh, and so I, I feel like I've gotten a lot closer to that. I just, this morning I ended up pulling off one of the stages of, um, you know, loudness limiting on this thing. I'm 
I'm going to go just a little bit quieter, maybe by about a dB, maybe dB and a half on this record. And, um, uh, yeah, I'm, it feels great. It feels great. It, just sound, it sounds like music. It sounds like, you know, all the records that I've loved listening to growing up, you know. What um, limiter are you normally using then for the kind of mastering stage? Um, I love the um, FabFilter Pro L2. Um, so I've been using that. Uh, for all my mastering stuff, that's sort of my final stage um, for for getting the level. Um, I've found that thing to just be the most invisible, the most musical sounding. Um, all the lim limiters, it's, it's it's a really impressive tool. So maybe moving on to talk about um, kind of reverb and delays and that sort of thing. Especially I was thinking about songs for the deaf. It's such kind of upfront record but there's still a lot of kind of depth and space around it even though it's not super audible maybe you could talk about your approach to that sure yeah I, I mean that record it was very intentional um we wanted to make a record that was super super in your face um but still have it live in in a, an identifiable environment and so you know we put the drums in a drum booth but there were room mics and there really weren't close mics on the drums. I mean, I, I had them there just as sort of a safety net, but um, the drum sound is mostly these three drum kit microphones. There's a, three overheads. There's a, a left, center, and right above the drum kit, and it was capturing, you know, the toms, the snare, and, you know, the, the overall sound of the kit. Um, we had more of a luxury to do that because, you know, we had made the decision to record the, the cymbals separately. So I could kind of put the mics wherever I wanted around the kit and optimize them to just capture this very sort of natural sound of the kit. And then there were a pair of C37As that were just way up high, um, you know, towards the ceiling in the booth. It's a tall ceiling in this booth. It's about 15 feet high. And, um, and so those were capturing more of the room sound. And so you hear that, like, tight, boxy, sort of claustrophobic room sound on the drums. So... There is a space there that you can hear the drums living in, but it's very tight and very focused. Um, and so it was kind of the same thing, you know, for the for the bass and the guitar. We just wanted everything right up in your face. And then when there were moments when we used reverb, um, it's very deliberate and very dramatic. It's not like this just sort of constant drone of, you know, drippy reverb on everything. It's like there would all of a sudden be a thing that just sounds very ambient and distant and make, you know, have it be very intentional and very deliberate when, when you're going to put something in another space, you know. Um, and so, you know, on that, the reverbs were either with, you know, a spring reverb on an amp um, or, um, you know, at uh, Barefoot Recording, I have a, a reverb chamber. And uh, I still find that an actual acoustic space, for some reason, is still just more identifiable as creating a, di a sense of distance and space more so than any of the plugins or you know digital reverbs have ever been able to do. Um, so we we did a lot more of that, just using acoustic spaces, um, real chambers, um, you know, to have things. Um, be you know actually really be distant when you wanted them to um there was um the one song god i'm so bad at remembering titles let me, hold on a second let me uh get my act together here uh 
I think it's called Mosquito Song. Is that right? Yeah, Mosquito Song. That one we actually recorded outside. Um, so the, the acoustic guitars um, uh, were we were set up outside with with Josh and it was probably Alan Johannes was playing the other guitar, and um, and so. I don't know if you've ever done much recording outside, but there's no ambience at all. <laughs> you know, it's like it's super, super dry. Uh, ended up being a really cool sound for the acoustic guitars. Um, let's see. God is in the radio. The drums were actually in the big room at Barefoot Recording. Um, at the time, the whole room was carpeted, so it was still kind of like a darker, thuddier sound. But you can hear more of a, a room sound on the drums on that song. Um, let's see. Um, yeah, most of the rest of the stuff was all done, you know, in that tiny little booth. Yeah. Do you have any kind of more general tips for um, using kind of reverb and delay and spatial effects kind of subtly? Yeah, I mean, I, I tend to gravitate towards the more organic versions of this stuff. Um, you know, so I love the Roland Space Echo or Chorus Echo is the version that I use, the SRE555. Um, so it's a combination of a tape delay and a spring reverb built into one box. I love that thing on vocals. Um, you can come with these settings where it's a, it's like a tap, um, a tapped tape delay, you know, with spring reverb on it. And it gives you just this really amazing, dark, very resonant, beautiful, um, long, reverb for for vocals um that just put it in this space and I, I also really like mono reverb on vocals um that it, it creates a focus you know for the lead vocal that i think is very classic sounding um and you know for other stuff i i always try and get it out of natural spaces you, you know if you have a big room use that room um if there's uh, if you have a chamber, the chambers are incredible for percussion and all kinds of stuff. You know, it just sounds. Your brain will identify it as as space and ambience more clearly when it's a natural space. Um, I have an EMT plate reverb. Uh, I use that a lot um, for plugins. I, I like I like vintage verb. Um, you know, I, I have to say, I sort of struggle with the plug-in reverbs. They, they, they always sound pretty disappointing for me <laughs> whenever I turn them on. It's like, why would I even want to use this? Um, there is one, um, it's a spring reverb um, impulse response that's um, in the Avid uh, reverb plug-in called Space. And the, re the, the one that I really like is, let's see, let me find it here. It's called Mic Mix Master Room. And it has four different impulses, dark, medium, dark, medium, bright, and bright. And, um, and I, I really like the bright one I use. I, that's probably of the reverb plugins. I probably use that the most, you know. And, um, you know, right now there's definitely a trend to just 
put a lot of reverb on stuff. Um, a lot of things I'm, I'm hearing coming out, I just hear tons and tons of reverb all, all over everything. So that's why, as you'd expect, the record I'm finishing right now has very little reverb on it. <laughs> it's bone dry. And, um, and so like the vocals, I'm just, um, I'm putting the, the lead vocal mic, which was, it was a 251 on this. I'm putting it in Omni. So you can just hear the, the relatively small spaces that the singer is singing in. And, um, it's just a much more intimate experience. You really feel like you're right next to the person that's singing. And, and I just, I feel like particularly for this record, which is a very personal, intimate record, um, that, um, the whole thing feels a lot more sincere and it, it feels like, um, you know, yeah, it feels more honest and sincere, you know, just hearing somebody in a room just really pouring their heart out. It's, it's a very powerful experience, you know. Have you tried the, uh, sound toys, uh, play plugin? I know it's a great plugin and lots of people love it and they use it all the time. Um, uh, I just, I haven't connected with it. Um, but you know, what I will say is, um, they, they released this kind of, um, this plugin that sort of flew under the radar. It's their emulation. It's an EQ plugin of that, that Siemens W295 equalizer that I mentioned before. And I fucking love that thing. I use that thing all over the place. It is like the best mid-range and high-frequency booster I've ever found um, in plug-in form. In fact, I was so impressed with it. It's the first time this has ever happened where I got the plug-in and was like, whoa, this is so musical. I love this thing. I can boost, you know, all these frequencies that normally would just tear my ears off, you know, and they just feel so musical. And so I ended up seeking out and buying you know, the original hardware, you know, vintage, um, hardware versions of it and just to check them out and see what it was like. And, and, and they're equally wonderful. Um, so I do use both now when I'm mixing, um, I have three of the original hardware versions that I'll put on some stuff. And then, uh, I use that plugin all over the mixes. Yeah. So. I love the, uh, the drive on that as well. It's really useful. Yeah. Yeah. You were saying before with the songs for the Death Record, it was kind of very deliberately, very upfront. Do you kind of normally have kind of aesthetics that you talk about with the bands that you're going for for a whole record? Definitely, you know, I um, I get very nervous about starting recording a record if I don't have a really clear vision in mind of what we're all going for. Um, it's a, that's a if you don't have that it's a, it's a real great way to waste a lot of time um and and so you know with each of the bands that i work with uh, you know i will spend a good amount of time um just hanging out with them listening to music really getting a sense of um what their sort of collective taste is and and sometimes it's interesting there'll be things that come up that they wouldn't really even think to incorporate as an influence. It's something they truly love, but they've never really recognized it as an influence. Um, and you know, when you start talking to people about music and records they love and what they love about them, you know, I'll start to find things that that's like, wow, this should really be a part of the aesthetic of this band, you know? 
um, with uh, with Good Charlotte. They they were huge, huge fans of Danny Elfman's soundtracks. That was one of the things they used to keep, you know, soundtrack CDs in their car. So they're driving around in their car listening to the soundtrack to Edward Scissorhands, you know, and which I just thought was so odd. And, um, you know, but really cool and a very unique influence for the band. And so I was like, we need to have this be a part of your world because it's a natural part of what your guys' musical, you know, universe is. And, and so, you know, we created a whole album intro that was very much inspired by the Danny Elfman, you know, um, um, compositions and arrangements and stuff. And then inco- incorporated those textures throughout the record. Um, and it's something that, you know, they would have never even considered including because it, I think it really didn't have anything to do with their band, but, um, that's what makes it cool. You know, it, it and you can take, a, you know, a punk pop band and add a whole new dimension to it by, it's going to be punk pop Edward Scissorhands, you know, like that's a new thing that hasn't existed before. So let's do that, you know? And so that's a really important part of the process for me is is having that vision and um, knowing where to go with it. So, one more, I, po- I really apologize if you get asked this um, regularly, but are you aware of the kind of Smash Mouth All Star, what it's become in kind of the internet? Uh huh. Sure. Yeah. There's there's actually a lot of that going on right now because it's the 20th anniversary of the release of that song, and so. Um, literally before talking to you, I, I just finished an interview with Rolling Stone magazine cause they're going to do an oral history of the song all star. <laughs> so, so yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm very aware of it. And, uh, so yeah, it's a thing. Yeah. I think that's all my questions. Uh, thanks so much for talking to me. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Great questions. We covered covered a lot of ground, and I, I hope it's you know there's something helpful in there for for folks.